Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of Audio Raw, the International Women's Initiative's podcast. I'm your presenter and host, Poppy Damon. Earlier this year, two women in Australia started a petition on a website called megaphone.org. The petition was called Not Your Honey, Honey Badette Workers Need Safe Workplaces. It now has over 7,000 signatures. What happened immediately after this petition was made was a series of public, fantastically colourful protests against the lingerie brand that garnered international attention, with public bra burning and the use of megaphones and eye-catching outfits. The campaign instantly had me interested, so this episode I'm going to talk to Chanel, one of the campaigners, and explore women in the workplace and how the brand of feminism can be appropriated by business and then used as a reason to exploit female workers. A little bit of background. The petition read like this. Honey Bardet have a responsibility to protect their workers from harassment and discrimination. We're calling on Honey Bardet to 1. Stop encouraging the sexual harassment of their staff by customers. 2. Implement policies and training to deal with harassment and bullying from customers. And 3. End their sexist dress code. So who are Honey Bardet? Honey Bardet, according to their website, began in 2006 over a glass of champagne between two friends. Tired of not being able to find provocative lingerie and luxury bedroom accessories, they set out to inject a sense of sensuality into the Australian bedroom. From carefully detailed lingerie to high-end toys for the bedroom, Honey Bidette will guide you through everything you need for the pleasure parlour. So, what you need to know about this brand is it's sexy, youthful and playful, and selling an idea that sex should be something enjoyed by women, which is sadly still a radical concept. Now this episode, as I mentioned, I'm essentially going to let Chanel, one of the campaigners, talk and we'll listen and find out a little bit more about this campaign and the issues that she faced in the workplace. Here's what's coming up. I feel obviously in a consumeristic society in that way that retail in the advantage of hiring identifying women where there is already a culture on self-sacrifice and practice of self-sacrifice that it is this absolute malicious system of preying on that on that opportunity that women are likely to hand themselves over when it's painted as an opportunity like nothing else they'd ever have anywhere else for a first question just um explain your story really like what happened when you were working with honey Burdette and then how that at what moment you sort of decided to then take action yeah it's funny hey because like when when I've spoken to lots of journalists over the time of the campaign being as live and active as it has been and initially doing an interview with the age about sexual harassment in the workplace being a worker people always ask me like you know when was this initial kind of turning point where you decided to be like someone to stand up and and you know fight against these conditions and I every time it's funny like contemplating it because I'm like I've always been that, like, and it was even in the early days of working at Honey Badette that I, I kind of already took on that initiative, not in the immediate realization that it was in such dire conditions and needs, but the minute I acknowledged that something wasn't operating to the extent that it needed to, and just the basic rights as a worker, I was like, ah, oh, this isn't right. I guess it's my place to say something and it being, you know, I, I'm not really sure how and why, but like an instinctive kind of recognition that I was someone who w- would be able to be confident enough to do so. And that was, 
pretty early on, I guess, as well, which is funny in the fuller trajectory of things that I was in the company for two and a half years, but it was in the first four months of the company when I really started to kind of take it upon myself to be in the position of someone who spoke out. But um, it was in the first week of employment that I was already faced with the, the issues of um, misconduct in the workplace. So for someone who's, um, I guess, listening and they don't know anything about it, so do you want to explain the company and kind of what, what you were doing for them and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, cool. So Honey Badette, um are now a in- – uh, now a uh, international uh, sensuality boutique, self-claimed. Um, so selling um, intimate apparel as well as um, intimate product in the different adult toys, so um, pleasure toys, sex toys, whichever way you prefer to refer to them. Um, as that, I was hired as like a, as a retail assistant. The position of a retail assistant in the world of Honey Bedette is more taking on um, the expectations of a cult-like personality in the way that when you step into the world of Honey Bidet, you're promised this future of, you know, women positivity, female positivity, body positivity, inclusiveness um, on this beautiful projection of, you know, classic glamour and, you know, subjective femininity. And like anyone, I suppose, who is looking to really find their own kind of celebration in that side of their own identity or, you know, my intentions of wanting to really honour the uh, importance of that internal relationship for an identifying woman or variating customer was my appeal to to work there, Um, specifically integrating into, um, you know, sexual and, and intimate education um, was as to why I was so drawn to be a part of the company. And and it really is so stylized. You know, it, it is so much in how you even need to um, compose yourself in a physical sense in the expectations, but they, they glamorize it from the very beginning that the even a, a quote in their guidebook as a staff member is like, you know, st- changing the world one stiletto clad foot at a time so they play on this persona of um you know conventional femininity in that way and i suppose that being such an appeal even for the most vulnerable person to have an opportunity to be like there is a place of power where i'm usually denied it so you know in all of that in this initial approach of it being such a positive space was such an immediate unrealistic expectation as well that you had to be wearing a certain height of heel at all times um, despite, you know, refusing to acknowledge that that being a mandatory uniform policy, one, wasn't acceptable, breached OHS conditions, but never anyone taking any actual responsibility for that in the way that you're, you know, always had to be wearing red lipstick. You always had to be dressed in a certain manner. You were encouraged to idolize certain women in that way. Um, And then again, encouraged to embody the certain personalities of individuals who were already in the store. Um, And, you know, basically then in that encouraging people to not be true to themselves. And, and that, that is the truth of it, regardless of that being argued. Um, and so as much as from the outside, we would all love to believe that it would be this place of such, you know, celebrated positivity. It couldn't be further from the truth of that. And it doesn't take you long to experience that. So 
I, I suppose, yeah, for, for me. So initially I was put my second shift ever into a store on my own um, with no training, no offered guidance. I was encouraged to not take breaks or go to the bathroom. And I was told that I was put in this store on the basis that the staff members already in that store were not performing to a standard that was considered appropriate. And I was basically there as a comparison to see if things could be improved or um, bedded. And that already making it this pitch against each other that those staff members suddenly having their hours reduced, putting in a new individual and their vulnerability, obviously me not being in a position where I could refuse that if it was a brand new job, um, but then inevitably spending suddenly an eight-hour day at a time where I was too fearful to go to the bathroom or have a break because someone had told me, quote, they'd prefer I did it. Um, and then an iconic little tactic of Honey Burdettes is then to call you throughout the day to make sure they know where you are or uh, upper management suddenly appearing at the store to make sure that you're still in store. And for the unfortunate individuals who were ever caught in the process of having to go to the bathroom and coming back, uh, no explanation as to where their absence was besides the bathroom, but they'd be berated for that or humiliated or just passively bullied. Are they management men or are they men and women and then all of the staff are women in the stores? Tragically, upper management is still a party of women um, and where, you know, the the entire thing just continues to be the severe disappointment that it is because it's just, again, women pitted against women um, and creating these complexes and these encouraged complexes in those ideologies that way. Um, so it was even more disheartening to have you know, women of your age, if not younger, a lot of the time, trying to bully you in these situations. So, if you, you know, your absence or your inability to meet a figure that was not realistic to make financially in the first place. Um, but it's this bred culture to be that kind of woman when you are in a higher position of power um, that that exacerbates it even more um, and I suppose in that relevance you know jumping forward a little bit but the end of my time in the company uh, it was a area manager who said again in quote I witnessed the text message that apparently I was lucky to not be working for a company of men who would have got rid of me a long time ago so even yeah even in the way that they you know aggravated that belief even more so and using these misogynistic ideals but against other misogynistic ideals which was just so bizarre did you immediately see i mean there must have been lots of unhappy employees there so was there kind of a sense of you know initially you're just sharing stories and more complaints and then you eventually leave and then is that the mo well i mean no you were saying there's no definitive moment but how does it then build into yeah. kind of a wider movement how did you collectively create action um, well, I suppose because when I came into the company, things were so small that I was the first person in Victoria to uh, in, even initiate conversation about things being unacceptable. And because I did it so publicly and so rightfully, in not even a manner of meekness, I just voiced the fact that things were not to a suitable standard and that because we all loved being there, there should be a reason that we should all continue to love being there, that it was then collectively that people started to come to me. And because I was so aware of the mutual working standard for everyone, I then started to approach my colleagues as the company grew as well. 
you know, being like, how many hours have you been working in so many days apart? When was the last time you took a break? Are you aware that these are the conditions that, you know, should be met and aren't being met? And in that same way, it would be week by week that someone was breaking down in tears. So if it wasn't, yet spoken about it was only a matter of time you watch someone you know brutalize themselves on not being able to meet this expectation that it was soon enough revealed that they were suffering and it was inevitable and what was also so disturbing through that process is that I had to convince so many people that it wasn't okay that you know I would have these colleagues of mine you know crying about their self-worth and it would have to be me being like, you do realize that this isn't okay, that you're feeling this way because someone is making you feel this way. And so it still wasn't until, you know, a good year and a half in, if not two years in, where it started to be that it was either being recognized in the company that other people started to acknowledge these issues. But again, a classic tactic was that like, if it got too close to it, they would just accuse someone of not working to the expectations and just get rid of them. And so they would do it before anyone would have an opportunity to act out in, again, the rightful way. And so I suppose this motivation was constantly suffocated. And as to why it took this, you know, nationwide campaign to suddenly motivate people to give themselves the respect that was constantly denied of them, that they were worth to be recognised on this scale after all of this suffering. But also what made it so tragic as well is that all of us by that point were also ex-workers, um, that either some of us were fired or reduced with no option but to leave, that so many women couldn't find their strength and couldn't find their voice until their time had well and truly passed. Um, because it was made sure that your voice wasn't allowed to be heard. Um, and I suppose that solidarity of time uh, it was the only way that anyone could identify with it, which still is a robbery in itself. Um, and as to why I suppose the campaign was able to have such drive when it came to it, because everyone was so angry about what was taken away from them. When you, well, talk a little bit about the tactics that you took. So what was sort of your steps? Obviously, I, I believe it began with a petition and then took yeah. on other factors. So tell me how it sort of escalated and grew into such a national uh, attention-grabbing campaign. Yeah, well, I, I suppose it's definitely worth mentioning that the very kind of initial public point was when my campaign partner, uh, Tori Wood posted something on her very largely recognised social media account on International Women's Day um, with the consent of an ex-worker to address her story about how on such an important day to recognise, you know, the strength and solidarity of identifying women together um, that a company like Honeybidet should never be acknowledged. And it was from there that we received hundreds of stories we were flooded the both of us um, from ex-workers current workers friends of workers um, women in other industries that put us in touch with an organization called the young workers center who for about nine months worked with us in developing this public campaign which in that process at first as well as mapping things out and finding workers from different states. We then visited stores within Victoria and spoke directly to staff members, creating a really neutral relationship and the fact that inevitably our names were pretty well known at the company at the time um, and that we were just offering the opportunity 
to speak to uh, Legal Assistance, which is the uh, Young Workers Centre. They're a free community legal organisation for workers under 30. And that to be able to have the honourable place of work that they deserve, uh, as well as, you know, again, encouraging that if it's a place they love, they deserve to have the rights that are theirs as well to get in contact with us. In that, workers were encouraged to not speak to us. Uh, someone who we still have a close acquaintance to was warned to expect a physically violent visit. So the fear-mongering started all over again just in the basis of something that was, you know, an exchange of business cards. Um, so it, again, gave us more ammunition to go from there to finally launch, say, the petition at first. So the petition being a public addressing of the fact that more in focus of, say, the sexist standards of uniform policy um, and expectation of women putting themselves in vulnerable positions working within the Honeybedet company um, had to be met and it had to be changed. And it was a call to arms, essentially. It was a call to addressing that Honeybedet had to answer to publicly. They refused to make comment. Within 24 hours, we received thousands of signatures it, it, it reached like 4,000 within that first 48 hour period um, which we then already had in plan our first surprise public stunt which was to uh, approach outside the Melbourne Central flagship store um, being a public uh, being a private property you know we had to instigate this in a certain manner that it was quick but basically to to reveal it in that kind of public uh, fight back in that sense that we weren't going to be silenced and we weren't going away and the reaction from that was just incredible as well where we then marched outside to the Victorian State Library um, and did a public bra burning as well as a, a public protest from there and just speaking to the public about all of our stories um, and it was definitely one of the most highly intensely emotional experiences of my life the rewarding you know I watched ex workers you know cry from the sudden emotional relief of being able to speak about it publicly and and I could just relate to that so significantly um it was then that we were just flooded with media response um it came to it that there was over 25 different media sources both nationally and internationally that wanted to speak to us and wanted to cover the story and even from there honey but it still refused to make comment um, and it became recognised as such a women's issue, you know, not just the the workers of Honey Badette and the ex-workers of Honey Badette, but a, a industry standard that is completely encouraged as a culture for women to subject themselves to working conditions that preys on their vulnerabilities, it preys on this bias of their identities to meet these ridiculous expectations. Have they made a comment after all this time? Because, I mean, this was a few months ago now. Has anything changed? Yeah. So there was another public stunt on Valentine's Day uh, where New South Wales workers and ex-workers stood outside their head office and um, wrote a giant, like, six-foot uh, breakup letter. And it was only on that day that they finally answered one uh, media source, which they basically denied all claims. So they denied stories of, you know, the honest 
situation of what workers experienced and what workers couldn't resolve. You know, this varies from just, you know, poor mental health to stories of physical assault and just denied any of it of being true and then again refusing to make any further comment. Um, so that in itself and what that aggravated from an audience perspective of the fact that essentially it was a victim-blaming situation by not addressing these issues, it remains till now that they still haven't come forward in any other way. Uh, it was that they were deleting hundreds and hundreds of comments every hour where people were flooding their social media demanding answers and by the looks of it they assigned someone to just sit there and delete them all because they were still being deleted at four o'clock in the morning at times and it wasn't until in the last say two months that we were able to confirm that they were investigated by WorkSafe Victoria so there's a government organization basically go in um a, investigate the workplace and then demand change of protocol and we do know that certain is issues have come up where they've had to realign their policies um, and include different practices uh, unfortunately WorkSafe can't confine to us what those specifics are um, but we imagine they follow you know your basic uh, you know occupation health and safety expectations uh, but you know it still is the situation that we still have workers contacting us and unfortunately you know having us know that there's still nothing that's really being done um, but inevitably the company are given a grace period to be able to demonstrate that they're making these changes until WorkSafe will act again um, so it's, it's at a standpoint for us to kind of just watch and wait um, which is really difficult because not only obviously is this so personal but it's critical and it is like an issue that like mentioned goes so above this and beyond this that it doesn't feel good enough until a, a comment is so directly made from them as close to an apology as possible um, which would be so powerful but at this stage there's pretty little on their side to prove otherwise so we'll just keep waiting and seeing. Definitely. And then oh, just a last question. Um, I suppose yeah. we, you kind of touched upon the fact that it intersects uh, a bigger problem about treatment of workers broadly, but also specifically of women in the workplace. And I yes. suppose my question is, how much do you think this is a story of them having an advantage of being able to hire people because it offered as you say, the, the promise of equality and a sort of progressive, body-positive feminism and then yeah. basically use that to trap people? You know, like how much is that what's going on and, and how much is that the reason that so many people stayed in the job, I suppose, because it actually offered something quite unique? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I feel, uh, you know, and, and this could be for some people considered an outlandish um, assumption, but given I was actively engaging in this culture, I believe it's an entire operation of entrapment. And I, you know, hate to get, you know, so deeply political into it that way, but I feel obviously in a consumer consumeristic society in that way that retail in the advantage of hiring identifying women where there is already a culture on self-sacrifice and practice of self-sacrifice that it is this absolute malicious system of preying on that 
on that opportunity that women are likely to hand themselves over when it's painted as an opportunity like nothing else they'd ever have anywhere else or painted like nothing else they have in any other means of their life. And by doing so, it then creates, and, you know, I witnessed it in that verbal verbal exchange that, you know, people really believed they were so lucky to be there. And by that engagement too, by being like, you know, you get to live this life and you get the opportunity to achieve in a career like nowhere else, had then the individuals, again, just constantly make acceptance for conditions that were so at times deplorable because they wholeheartedly believed that that was the closest measurement of worth that they would ever come to. And I think it's something that is so rampant in multiple industries because it comes into this feminist issue that so many women are just then blindly, you know, accepting to conditions that is what they believe is just accept is what is expected of them to accept because it's always going to be everywhere. So what's the difference? And I would have people say that, you know, when the campaign was live and active, you know, whether it was comments from strangers or it was comments from people who were even, you know, close to me being like, well, you know, it could be worse. And I constantly always make this comment that there should be no measurement on this kind of abuse from zero to a hundred. Zero is bad enough. And, and I feel like that's really relevant in the way of the fact that this is so much of that, that issue and where I can absolutely confidently say that it is this, you know, entrapment process that keeps this issue alive because people count on the fact that someone is probably going to feel weak enough to let it happen. And Honey Bedette at this stage are going to keep those cogs working until someone stops them completely. That was the incredible Chanel Rogers sharing her experience. A lot of food for thought there. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this month. Thank you for listening to Audio Raw, 25 minutes of feminism and human rights. Keep this conversation going. Follow me on Twitter, poppy underscore Damon, and find out more information about our podcast on the IWI website. Subscribe and have a safe and happy month. Until next time.